VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, August the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. What's on your mind? Let us know. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you're going to hear me mention this name, I would imagine, repeatedly over the years to come. Jada Lee. So we all know the story. The first female to pitch on the men's baseball team at the Summer Games. Now she's got an invitation to throw out the first pitch at the Blue Jays game on Saturday with the Cleveland Guardians, formerly the Cleveland Indians in town. So that's pretty cool. Get on the mound. Has anybody else from the province thrown in the opening pitch at a Jays game? Maybe Doyle? I know he's sung the anthem at a Leafs game and stuff like that. But anyway, she's going to throw out the first pitch. Stick with baseball for a second. It was the day in history, 1929, that the Sultan of Swat, the Bambino, Babe Ruth became the first baseball player to hit 500 career home runs, playing, of course, at that time for the New York Yankees. They were in Cleveland playing at League Park, and he launched one out of the park onto Lexington Avenue. Young fella got the ball, brought it back to the Babe, got an autograph, and 20 bucks. 20 bucks in 1929 for that ball, the first 500 home run hitter in the bigs. Of course, finishing his career with 714 home runs. That record stood for 44 years until Hammer and Hank Aaron beat it. Now, Barry Bonds with an asterisk against his name, I think, is number one career, but it's still then. It's Aaron and the Babe. Pretty cool. All right, so that's baseball. Back to the summer games. Boom, boom. Big win for the uh, boys' basketball team yesterday. Beat Manitoba. That's a pretty significant victory. I try to keep abreast of what's happening out there. We had another great day in the pool yesterday. Bravo to the swimmers. If you can help me fill the gaps with whatever sport, whether you got a member of your family or a friend or whoever that's in Niagara competing, we can give them a shout-out here if you give me the deets because it's kind of hard to follow all of the different sports throughout the entirety of the games, but let's go. Bouncing back to pro. Serena Williams bowed out for her last appearance in Canada as a professional tennis player last night as she was beaten in the National Open. Her first professional tournament was in a Tier 3 tournament when she was the age of 14 in Quebec City. And that's it for Serena. She's going to retire after this year. Many people thought that was going to be the case. Now, arguably the best player of all time in the female world. Maybe an argument to be made for Martina Navratilova. But with her 23 career Grand Slams, I think that's just one behind Margaret Smith Court. She's got 47 hardcore titles, which is, of course, what they play on in Toronto. Four Olympic gold medals. She's won 855 matches. And this is it for the great Serena Williams as she's going to move on. Okay. World Juniors. <laughs> I saw the World Juniors pop up on my TV screen and kind of forgot that the COVID-related matters saw it shut down over the Christmas holidays, and now it's back in Edmonton right now. Canada opened up against Latvia with a 5-1 win, played Slovakia today. A lot of eyes will be on young Conor Berdard. So when I saw it yesterday, I thought it was a replay. <laughs> but no, the World Juniors just bing right back in front of us, and there you go. Back to town, or back to Newfoundland and Labrador. So do you know what cornhole is? Okay. It's a pretty much a cabin game, a backyard game. You have a bean bag, and you throw it at a, uh, a sloped piece of plywood with a hole caught in it. And, the, of course, the goal of the game is to get the bag through the hole. They call it cornhole. So apparently, there's a fella from St. John's, Dion Cusa, is going to become the first professional cornhole player 
from this province. So apparently him and the boys, they played, I suppose, out at the cabin or in the backyard or wherever they do it, and they saw that there was an American Cornhole League holding an open tournament in Niagara Falls. A few of the boys said, let's go do it. Then at one point during the tournament, it was told that Diane Cuso is the last Canadian standing and consequently coming out the other side with a professional contract. Now, what his professional contract looks like, I have no earthly idea. But he's going to be playing against apparently the world's best cornhole players. Professional cornhole. Pretty great stuff. If Diane Cuso is listening this morning or someone who knows Diane, give him a shout, ask him that. We'd love to have him on the program to talk about it because, you know, they play pro everything. You know, even in the gaming world, I had a look at some of the numbers. The numbers of viewers and participants in online games, even at the professional ranks, is mad. And the money they make is pretty significant as well. Pretty wild stuff. Anyway, Pro Cornhole. Love it. What's this? Okay. So, you know, reading between the lines with some of the comments coming from the leadership group, representing the firefighters doing yeoman service and those flying the water bombers and the helicopters, their support staff and the volunteers. They sound encouraged by the more favorable conditions and trying to get a handle on the big fires in Central. There's still some continued worry from some regarding smoke conditions, maybe in Grand Falls, Windsor, Bishop's Falls, Botwood, what have you. I'm not out there, so I don't know what it's like, but if you are there, please give us your experience about what you're smelling and seeing in your community. But they seem to be, you know... They're hesitating to say we've turned the corner and we've got this. But with the more favorable conditions and the assessments that they're seeing and the opportunity to keep Route 360 open, which, of course, would be, I suppose, one of their ultimate goals, when there's only one road in and one road out and the scarcity of some supplies, of course, that would be something that they're hyper-focused on. But again, sitting in here on Kemmout Road gives me zero perspective about what's happening in Central, whether it be on the other side of the fire, down Harbor Breton or what have you, or Con River, and even folks in the Grand Falls, Windsor, Bishop's Falls, Botwood area, what you see would be welcomed here on the program this morning. And we mentioned all the different folks who are fighting these fires. You know, it's worth a shout-out for some of the corporate entities who are chipping in to try to do what they can as well. Mary Brown's. You know, they opened their doors for, for, for the first time in Newfoundland some 50 years ago. They helicoptered in a bunch of snacks, but they also recognized the fact that there was a shortage of baby formula, wipes and diapers and the like, and so they brought a load of those along as well. Cook Aquaculture, offering a couple of their vessels to ship in goods as well. So there's lots of times when, you know, it's unfortunate where any time a company does a good thing, people look at it with an eye of skepticism, and that's fine. Being skeptical is in some form healthy. But a good thing is a good thing, so bravo to those two companies for chipping in on the effort. All right. I heard Noah Shepard uh, in the VOCM newscast talking about the fact that WestJet is now going to resume its once-weekly nonstop flight to Orlando, uh, to Orlando from St. John's International starting October 8th. All right. That direct flight is fine. You know, I don't know how much business it brings this way rather than some of the flights maybe to Europe or to Newark, New Jersey or what have you, but for folks looking for convenience and want to make their way to FLA. So that is going to resume on October the 8th. Unfortunately, on the other side of the corporate airline news, and this one is driving me, WestJet and Air Canada are looking at the loopholes based on some of the rulings made by the the Canadian Transportation Agency They were trying to give us a clear understanding of what's going on with the Passenger Bill of Rights and compensation due to travelers when their traveler is interrupted by no fault of their own. So what they said is that, here's the clarification, quote unquote, in general, 
Airlines can't deny passengers compensation for flight disruptions caused by crew shortages in general. That's a nice bit of wiggle room afforded to WestJet and Air Canada. It's absolutely accurate to say that the staffing shortages may create unsafe work conditions, and none of us as potential passengers want to be in the air with an overworked, stressed-out, sleepy crew. Nobody wants that. But it's a safety condition that's self-inflicted by the airlines. You sold me the seat. You put the schedule up yourself. We didn't draw the schedule and pass it to you and say, now go ahead and put the flights and the flight crew in place. They did it themselves. So with all the hiccups and hurdles and delays at the airports, we can blame it on whatever you like. But the airlines and the border security group, they weren't prepared for what was a fairly predictable rush back to the air. People wanted to travel. People had travel vouchers. People felt cooped up. And the pent-up demand for travel was so real, you could smell it from here, just like you could smell the smoke on the Brady Spare Highway. And they're not going to pay the compensation. When your travel is disrupted, they owe you up to $1,000 in compensation. And they're not paying it because the, the Canadian Transportation Agency said, in general. Ah, man, they know full well that's not the intent or the spirit of the compensation rules, the Passenger Bill of Rights, but they're going to wiggle out of it. I know their revenues are way off. We all understand what has happened to the airlines in this country and around the world. But that's simply not good enough. And they know it. In their quiet moments, in their boardrooms, they know they're on the wrong side of this. But who holds them to account? Who's going to do anything about it? They've pretty much got the market, I almost said an inappropriate phrase, they got the market and have the passengers right where they want us. You know, you can fly PAL, you can fly Porter, you can fly Sunwing, even though subsidiary kind of stuff in Sunwing's case. But it's not my fault that you've created a safety issue because you don't have a ready, freshened, ready-to-fly crew whether it be on the ground on the tarmac or the, the flight attendants and or the folks flying the aircraft in the cockpit. But anyway, you want to talk about that? Let's go. And on that front, we've seen all the pictures of the delays. My last bit of travel, I didn't see them, but I didn't fly through Pearson International. There are, <laughs> and this is, let me set it up by saying this. It's funny how people deride the experts when the experts say something they don't like, but they applaud the experts when they're on their side. You know, we've kind of lost any cachet associated with the word expert, but with the Arrive Can app, it's created a lot of controversy and consternation. Having used it, I'm not so sure it did anything to potentially pose any delay because we have long lined up in the line of customs to present our written declaration with all the same information without the vaccination status in years past. So that's what the ArriveCan app does. It's got your name and your number and your address and where you went and where you live and your vac status, and there was a major glitch in it. For six days, I believe it was six days, the, the app was sending an email to fully vaccinated travelers telling them that they have to quarantine for 14 days. And of course, the app doesn't set the rules. CBSA sets the rules and or of course the health authorities. So one expert now is saying that it violates the charter because of our right for free to be able to roam freely in the country. All right, so if it's about the glitch and there's some apparent trade secrets associated with the can, I don't know whether or not we should have it. But I do know if it's causing unnecessary glitch emails, then that's a problem. Of course it is. 
Who's going to be held accountable? Not the, go- not the uh, company. Maybe the government will. I don't think it's responsible for much in the way of delays. People don't like the whole concept of having your information online. They don't like the applications. They see it as some sort of roadmap to overwhelming, crushing digital ID. And uh, you hear all the stories that people talk about on that front. But of course, remember, your passport declaration and your passport itself has included all that information in years past, minus your vaccination status. But I will say this. Regardless of your vaccination status, the whole concept of a vaccinated person not having to do anything in the way of self-isolation or quarantine upon arrival back in Canada, as someone once again who recently traveled, I have two shots in the primary series and the one booster. I arrived home. Lo and behold, a few days later, I tested positive for COVID. And I was unwell for a couple of days. So I think the same could be said that the whole concept of being encouraged to stay home if you're sick. And we know the possibility for vaccinated versus unvaccinated to contract the virus and to spread it. There are differences, but you can still get it if you're vaccinated like I was. So isn't it more sensible and reasonable that even if you're unvaccinated, we would only hope that travelers, because we know the COVID's in our community, and we'll get to the numbers in a second, but if you return home, regardless of your vaccination status, if you just mind your bobber for a few days to make sure that you didn't bring it home to your family, your friends, or the general public, just play safe for a few days, maybe take a rapid test if you present any symptoms, and then determine for yourself whether or not you should. And you should stay home out of it and isolate for seven days for sure after the onset of symptoms. But just basing it on vaccine or not is not following. If we're told to follow the science, the science... I'm not going to, I suppose I'll get into whatever debate you like, but, you know, just do the right thing for your friends, for your family, for yourself, for your community. Return home, watch yourself, play safe for a few days, get a test, even if it's just a sniffle. I know the rapid antigen test is not perfect. And even if you don't get one, you don't feel well, it's long been the case. Regardless of whatever virus is in the community, if you don't feel well, stay home. So anyway, some experts are saying the RivCan app is a violation of the charter. And I don't know if you want to take it on. We can do it. In the world of travel, price of gas down a cent, diesel down about five cents. That's a good thing. I wonder if we've reached some sort of peak in the inflationary pressures on the price of the goods that we consume. I know food is still off the charts. But you look around, so copper is down, and corn is down, and canola has softened. Lumber prices are coming back to earth, so to speak, even though pre-pandemic, at one point, the price of lumber, especially framing products, were up some 300%, so we're nowhere near what we would refer to as normal in the price of lumber. But some of these prices are softening. Hopefully, we've reached the peak of this unbelievable infl- inflation pressure, which is does indeed have an overlap of the cost of living, but it's not the exact same thing. But I wonder if we arrived at a better spot. All right. Someone called last week about uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians getting priority to travel via Marine Atlantic and made reference to BC Ferries. She was right. BC Ferries did indeed have priority for residents, but as of tomorrow, they're dropping it. They'll still have the priority loading for goods and services, for medical issues, and then it's first come, first serve. It will no longer have a priority spot, which was causing delays and some confusion and was being abused. So the whole priority for BC residents going to where the ferry is traveling, if you're a resident there, you get priority to board, no longer as of tomorrow. All right, good news and maybe an indication of what's coming regarding the whole world of wind. And this is out in Argentia. Good news is good news. So I don't know what the world is going to bring with the big plans out in Port of Port for the wind to hydrogen and or the wind to hydrogen in Argentia and whatever other wind play.
But Argentia and the Port Authority, they've signed a $65 million deal for a laydown yard, a storage yard, for wind turbine parts. It's going to create some 20 jobs. Now, it doesn't mean that there's going to be any wind business necessarily in the province, but given where we are with the deep sea port and proximity to the northeastern United States, that's a good piece of good news. It may be beginning of the tale of some more wind projects that will indeed happen and come to pass in this province, but good news for the Port of Argentia and their new CEO, I had his name right in front of me a second ago, Scott Penny. So good job, Scott Penny, because they had doubled down on the oil and gas business, but now, you know, they were making cold calls. They made this happen. No one identified a deep sea port in Argentia. Apparently, the CEO and his leadership team, they identified some opportunities. They identified the players. They got on the phone, and here we are, struck a $65 million deal for what, in essence, I think, is a laydown storage yard for windmill parts in Argentia. Interesting news, Lana Payne has been now elected the president of Unifor, of course, Canada's largest union, representing some 300,000 workers. Congratulations to Lana. She's a well-known labor leader in this province and across the country. Defeated executive assistant to the president, Scott Doherty, and local 444 president, Dave Cassidy, yesterday. She was formerly the secretary-treasurer of Unifor, pretty significant leadership position. And in that position, she brought forward the investigation into former president, Jerry Diaz. Diaz was a firebrand, to say the least. And so they say that he, the constitutional breach dealt a severe blow to the credibility of the union. Mr. Diaz apparently had recommended and was involved, way too far intimately involved, in recommending the company to supply COVID-19 test kits to Unifor employees. And he's out the door. He was first elected in 2013. Now Lana Payne, the first woman to hold the job as well as the president of Unifor. Congratulations to Miss Payne. All right, for the purpose of information, and for the life of me, I just cannot understand why any time that there's just details offered to the general public, that everyone's accused of fear-mongering. If you choose to be afraid, that's on you. Mindful and aware is what I choose to go with, and this is not offered to make anyone afraid. And so again, if you just want to blister me with the emails, it's the same six or seven people that is fear-mongering. You choose to be afraid, that's on you. The problems yesterday reported eight additional deaths related to COVID. And the same six or seven people asking about VAC status and, you know, is it with or from COVID? Eight people are dead. And at some point they had COVID, which was part of their death. So COVID-related death. That brings a total of 217. We know it's not gone away. Maybe the pressures have been reduced somewhat. Hospitalization is down two. Now that means 14 in hospital. Two are in critical care. We wish them all a speedy recovery. So that's the information, and you can do with it as you see fit. It's still in the community, but mindful, aware, is always going to be helpful when we're dealing with that particular issue. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. Let's get a tune on the go before we come back and we speak with you. In 1979, fast-tracking the way to the top ten, Take it from Jeff Lynn. ELO had a huge hit on their hands with Don't Bring Me Down. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, as we know, the fires in Central have had a distinct impact on many communities, including the Miapakek uh, First Nation. It's a Mi'kmaq community. Of course, many people know as Con River. Joining us on line number one is Chief Misal Joe. Good morning, Chief. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Uh, Chief, did I say Miapakek properly? Um, you're close enough. People understand it. Okay, you know, because I, I, I admit uh, I struggle with the pronunciation of those words, and I'd like to be able to get it right, if at all possible. But welcome to the show, sir. 
Thank you very much. So we know uh, access to Con River, a community surrounded by forest, the access road is Route 365, which branches off the Bay to Spare Highway. How has the fires impacted your community? Well, in many ways, of course, uh, there's only one access from Trans-Canada Highway down to the Conacre. There's also one access coming into the community. Our only road out and would have been way out of here would have been through our own road or the water. So, you know, it was a, a double double worry for us. And, and we had a lot of people on the other side that was a worry that we, we didn't know what to do for them. But I have to say, thank God for the Red Cross, who, who stepped up and looked after a lot of people. And on this side, of course, we had people stuck on the Baysbury Highway waiting to go across. So, again, people in this community, I know maybe around the Bay, uh, took food, water, whatever you could eat to, eat to them while they were waiting. But eventually, I guess, they got turned around and told to come back into the community. But uh, we brought in uh, two of our fishing boats from River Britain uh, the night that the fire, uh, the smoke uh, came into the community and was hash all over the place. Uh, we know we couldn't evacuate everybody out of the community, but at least it was a, I guess, a, a level of comfort for people that maybe had problems with the breeding and the fire was causing and the smoke. So, but, so we had to do those things as short of. Uh, you know, grocery items and gasoline and things like that. But uh, through it all, we have an incredible team of people on the ground that was in constant, constant touch with Central Health and the rest of the team of, of the Conager, uh, Grand Falls, Broadwood, and all the other surrounding communities Central. And that, too, was an help to us to, to sitting on those calls and to hear what's being done on their end and what we had to do on our end. So it all came together really, really good in that way. Um, and to be able to sit and listen to the mayor of Grand Falls or Robert Britton talk about the kinds of things that we need to do. And we realized we're, we're not the only ones in this. There are a lot of people going through the same kinds of, of things that we are at this stage. So that, that was part of that. But, but the worry uh, for me was to not knowing what was happening on the other side with our people and how we were going to get them out of there. And then the other worry, of course, was that Facebook is a wonderful, wonderful tool to use in the right reasons, but also worry that people would get on Facebook and then create a panic uh, among our people, our, even our own people, and trying to let them know that we're working on this, we're, we're getting through it, and there's the things that we're trying to do. So basically, that's pretty much it. You don't realize just how easy it is to be cut off, whether it be the folks down on the Canadian Peninsula and down the Route 365 to Con River. I saw a quote coming from Rod Jador talking about working on a fire break. What's the plan? Right now, uh, we've been in constant uh, touch with uh, ESC, formerly known as Indian Affairs, to try and find additional dollars to build a fire break around the community and also have... Uh, you know, contact with uh, Marabuki Wright, which is one of our partnerships with, with a company in St. John's. We have a large number of uh, ocean-going boats. We also have a decommissioned icebreaker. I know it's not practical to think that an icebreaker can leave somewhere where he's working, coming to the community. But those are the things that we're going to be talking about. How do we, how do we create a, a road out of here by water if need be? And how do we build a fire break around this community that would maybe not stop a fire but slow it down 
And uh, for that, we're going to need all the community coming together and sit down and look at uh, how we do that. How do we move people into a situation if we have to move by uh, by water, for instance? How do we get out to, uh, uh, for instance, the the polar prince was anchored in the bay. How do we get people out there? And how do we get uh, elders out there and people that uh, need assistance in moving? All those things have to be part of the plan going forward. So, so it's left us with, I guess, in a sense, a better education of what we need to do as a community. Chief Margaret Cranford called us yesterday, really late in the show, to talk about one of the worries that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. You know, we talk about gas and supplies and baby formula and access and what have you. She's talking about wildlife and what the impact of the fires have had on wildlife, whether it be migratory paths and or vegetation and what it's going to mean for wildlife in the area. Do you have anything to, any update on that front for us? What do you know about what's the impact been on wildlife in the area? It's been, I would imagine, havoc for wildlife, all wildlife in the area. And, and of course, the fire is right in the corridor of migrating caribou. I, we now, in the past, we've known that caribou have a way of surviving and moving to different areas of, of migration. And uh, through that, throughout that fire, I would imagine there's countless things that got destroyed, including a lot of wildlife and a lot of the the plants and stuff that people uh, need to use. Uh, and I guess if you want to call it a good thing, uh, two years' time, we're going to have an incredible berry patches to go to pick the blueberries from anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to get an update in the middle of the ongoing trying to control the fire until it's after the aftermath and people go in and have a good look for a full assessment. Uh, Chief, if you don't mind, I, I want to pick your brain about the deal that was struck between Miapakek First Nation and the First Nation's Major Projects Coalition regarding liquefied natural gas, part of the road to self-sufficiency in your community. Is there an update to offer on that front? Nothing at this stage. There's, there's still a discussion ongoing. And uh, we're, we're not quite there yet, but we're still working through some logistics with government and uh, and companies that are buying into this. And we're, we're a ways away yet from actually uh, shoveling the ground and ready to go to work. So it's, uh, you know, not a lot to, to pass on beyond that. And last one, sir, before I let you go. Of course, there was an extraordinarily important historical story regarding the repatriation of, the t- of two biotics to the yeah. province. And I w- I'm not going to uh, butcher their names because I've struggled with those names as well. My apologies. Give the folks uh, just a reminder on what happened and where will they find their final resting place. Well, right now, of course, they're resting in, in rooms. And I, I visited there once already. And, uh, and right now... Uh, there is a statue that was commissioned by the by the, the provincial government to have erected somewhere near uh, Confederation Building, and then the ongoing uh, discussions of where those remains would be placed. And I've always thought that the appropriate place for them to be laid to rest somewhere near where they were taken from, or where they, somewhere out on uh, around the Beatty Lake. Now, uh, how do you be laid to rest is something else because. You just can't put them in the ground. You have to have a place where uh, where, it's, where it's protected in many ways, and there should never be a place of, uh, of you know uh, where people going as all about tourism. It's got to be a place that's a sacred place where people going to to understand and appreciate uh, life and death of the other people, and that's 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 my vision. And that may not be everybody's vision, but that's mine. But I'm sure in time we'll get to that part of it.
But, but again, I want to go back and, and, and say this. During the time that we were uh, without baby formula and pampers and stuff like that, we had a Marburg arise and stepped up and chartered our aircraft from Torburn Lake to bring in a plane load of, of those goods for our, our, our community. And yesterday, they brought in another load of, of uh, milk that, that children need in the community. But we did have a, a freight truck coming in. Uh, we now have gas. So things are coming back to normal. But I don't want to get too normal where we get back, back to Daisy. And now, now we don't have to sit down and do anything. But we, now we really step up to the plate and start working toward building a, a better plan, uh, looking after our people in this community. I really appreciate your time this morning, Chief. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir, and you have a great day. The very same to you. Bye-bye. As Chief Missile Joe, of course, from Miapakek, First Nation, Con River. Uh, good stuff there. Very quickly before we get to the uh, break. So you hear me talk about sports and athletes, and, you know, like Jessie Penny yesterday, talk about her father, Dave, who was a great rugby player, played for Canada. She's playing rugby sevens. It's those family stories. You never know what's going on in the life of the young athletes. So this story was just shared with me. I'm going to share it with you. Jared Pickle from Placentia, produced a lot of softball players on Placentia. He was named to the all-star team at the, uh, or the U15 Boys Canadian Fashionist Championships. So he's on the all-star team. We want to congratulate uh, Jared for playing so well. So when he left for the competition, which took place at Wilmot, Ontario, his grandfather was moved into palliative care. And Jared, with all that on his shoulders and thinking about Pop while he's out playing ball, knowing that he may never see his Pop again. And he played well enough to be named to the All-Star Team. Congratulations to Jarrett, and we wish your family nothing but the best. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Bernard. You're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Hi, how are you? Grand this morning, sir. How about yourself? Oh, hanging in. Good. Uh, I'm trying to find out if uh, the seniors, 75 plus, is getting a $500 uh, pay next week or something. I don't know. No, that was a one time only, and it was only at the time when the increased World Age Security was announced. So those who qualified at that time, they've already got that money. Now, those who now turn 75, you will be on the receiving end of the 10% increase in your old Age Security, but that $500 was only the one time for those who qualified at that very moment. Okay, so there's nothing... Uh at the present time. Well, th- there is. Uh, July checks were up uh, not only the 10%, and a fellow yesterday said his was only up about 8.5%, but there was what they call the quarterly indexation. So maximum old-age security benefits went up by 2.8% in addition to the 10 in July because of the, they adjust for the consumer price index. But the $500, that was a one-timer, and it only went out to those who qualified at that uh, specific time in history. Okay, very good. That solves all my questions. Probably not what you wanted to hear. Not what I wanted to hear, but I mean, it's just the way it is, eh? Fair ball. I appreciate the time this morning, sir. Thanks a lot for the call. I, I thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Yeah, so uh, the fellow, the gentleman who called yesterday about the fact that his uh, old age security check was not up by the full 10%. I think I recall him saying it was in the neighborhood of 8.5%. We're trying to find out why that is. You know, sometimes there's a change to the amount you get because of your income. 
but for the max benefits, you got another 2.8% in July based on CPI. Let's go to line three. Paul, you're on the air. Uh, Patty, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, I uh, I got a few things down here that I'm trying to get rid of. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I called there, but I, I couldn't get through. So I, I waited for this uh, voice to come on anyhow, but I waited so long I had to hang up on it, right? When was that? Yesterday. Okay. So uh, I got a... I got a... Uh, a tow truck. I got a car hauler. I got a tow dolly, and an, uh, all the stuff to do with towing, right? So one second, a car hauler is a flatbed that you can haul the car up on. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I got a, a tow dolly. What's a tow dolly? Like yeah, you can haul a car on it. So like when I see a race car up on a dolly. Yes, like a two wheels, right? Got it. And uh, got a few things like that I'm trying to get rid of because there's no good to me, by. What kind of condition are all these things in the tow truck? Let's start with the tow truck. What kind of condition? Is it working? Is it operable? Can it tow anything? It can. Well, it, it needs a, a hose put on the back, a hydraulic hose. Okay. That's nothing. Basically, that's only 50 bucks or 60 bucks. And it needs a... Uh, a, a, a turbo, the turbo smokes a bit, but all turbo smokes. <laughs> so all you need is uh, uh, put a new wheel on it. But on the turbo, it's all wheels, right? And that don't cost much, and they got themselves a good tow truck. What manufacturer made this tow truck? What is it? Chevy. Is it Chevy? Okay. Yeah, uh, I bought it from Ontario, right? So you did it for a living, and now you're retiring, just getting out of the job? Well, I did it maybe to haul scrap cars and stuff. Okay. Down Very here good. In, down here in Newfoundland, right? Where in Newfoundland are you? I'm in Carbonier. Carbonier. And so let's move on to the car hauler. What year is the car hauler? Uh, car hauler, uh, it's in good shape. Okay, it's in good shape. We don't it's know what year, but okay, good, we'll take it. It's in good shape, and as I say, it's got double wheels on it. Double axle. Is that a Chev too? Uh, that would be uh, that would be uh, a Ford, a Ford school bus, basically a Ford school bus chassis that was converted over to uh, to uh, a car hauler. So it's built to haul few cars, you know, a race car or motorcycles or skidoos, whatever they want to use it for. So if it's a dually, is it a big 7.3 power stroke diesel? Uh, no, uh, it's the uh, 6.5. Okay. Yeah, so 6.5. I thought it was a 6.7, but 6.5, you know it's your truck. Okay, yeah. so you want to get rid of it. That means you're selling it, though, right, Paul? Well, yes. Okay, you, do you give out your number. If anyone wants to call you about the truck, the hauler, or the dolly, they'll give you a shout. What's your number? Uh, it's uh, 573. Yeah. Uh, one eight, one five seven three one eight one three. If you're in the business or looking for a tow truck that needs a hose and a turbo smokes, the car hauler, good shape, tow dolly, give Paul a shout at five seven three one eight one three. Appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Paul. Okay, thanks, buddy. All the best. Okay. Bye bye. Now we're not the buy and sell. We we won't be doing that a lot, right? So, but maybe someone out there looking to add to their fleet. 
pretty good business as far as I can tell. Uh, anyway, there you go. Let's go ahead and take a break. First, let's check the Twitter. I haven't had a look at the Twitter here this morning. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. I see a tweet from GolfNL saying, Congratulations and good luck to Ethan Effort and Ryan Howell and Sanjana Gulapali and Paige Allen. They're heading to Niagara for the Canada Summer Games in week number two. Ethan just competed in the Canadian National Junior Championships, finished T34, total uh, 40 total, 287. Good for one under par. Good for you, Ethan. Good luck to your team in Niagara. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Alfred, you're on the air. Hello? Hello, Alfred. Yes, uh, I'm calling about pharmacies. I deal with pharmacies for quite a while, and it works out pretty well the same. There's a problem between the doctor, the pharmacy, and the insurance company. I'm, I was out of insulin with one pharmacy for two whole weeks, had three ambulances in the house because I'm a heavy diabetic. I, I couldn't buy it. They said you got to wait until the end of the month, and that's doing, doing the same thing. You had to wait to buy what? Insulin? I, insulin, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm a heavy diabetic, uh, very heavy. I almost died through it. Um, so I just, the last time, I went to uh, Hagerty's office, now it's Osborne's office. There's a lady there I was appointed uh, for a pharmacy, so I can't reach, I don't know her name, I can't reach it, uh, to try to help out. The pharmacy should be told what their authority is, what they can do or cannot do. Because it's not like we're talking about a drug that can, well, maybe I'm wrong. We're not talking about a drug that people are abusing and sell it on the streets. If you need insulin, you need your insulin. So is there a long-standing rule that you can only... That, 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 that's what I'm trying to find out. Yeah. I'm just a, 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 a layman into a situation which I don't have all the answers to. But I'm picking up a little bit here and there. Uh, the answer is, is I phoned the doctor. She sent out a, a prescription, so they got that on file. The uh, um, insurance company says as long as they got a doctor's prescription, they'll cover it. So where is the problem lying? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. With the pharmacy, or is the problem lying with the insurance company, or with the doctor? Is is one of the three? Well, I suppose the, that's the triad, isn't it? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. We do have access to some pharmacists. We talk about all kinds of drug-related matters and access issues. So maybe I can reach out and see if one of them can fill us in as to why there's a such a hard and fast date as to when you can get your insulin. I don't know. So did you run out, or you have had been forced well, to use I more, or what's, what's going on? I got enough to do me until Monday. Okay. And that's it. I'm out of it. For until the end of the month, and that should not be. I, I have an insurance I pay in. I work at the university. I get my pension every every month from the university, and they pay the uh, the fees to the insurance company. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know how that particular uh, setup works, but the access to at the, by the end of the month or whatever, as you described, I don't know what to say to it, but I can see if I can find out. And if you stay tuned to the show, if someone sends me an update as to why that is the way it is, I'll be happy to talk about it. Okay, and see what you can find out. Sure. Because I, I don't have the answers. No problem. Let's see if I can get some. Yeah, okay. Okay, Alfred. 
All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern because very quickly we knew a lot more about supply chains and interruptions and discontinuation of drugs and you know, spikes in demands for a lot of different drugs. And then there was the unfortunate reality there was some panic buying. Now, I'll still never, ever understand the panic buying of toilet paper. Remember that when that was going on? people stocking up the closets with toilet paper anyway but in the world of prescription drugs and other drugs it was happening you know there was uh, interruptions in manufacturing and insulin was actually one of the drugs where there was some concern diabetes canada if i remember correctly was encouraging people to not do that to not panic buy because it's not something that you can do without there's not a substitute for insulin so if you're you know, even to this day, there are some drug shortage concerns, and it's a bit of a moving target, and some drugs are perpetually on the list. Some drugs maybe sporadically appear on the list, but there's a fairly helpful website. I think it's, once again, at Canada.ca, or if you just Google up drug shortages in Canada, you'll come to a page. I'm pretty sure it'll be a government page, but it talks about how you define a drug shortage, what to do, when, and if, the why there might be a shortage of drug, a list of the drugs that are, that are short on. So maybe that can be of help. Speaking of our health, interestingly, today, uh, Minister of Finance, uh, the Deputy Premier, Siobhan Cody, is launching a, an awareness campaign regarding healthy beverages. No trouble to know what that's a precursor to. It's the introduction coming this September to a tax on sugary drinks, right? Of course, it's got to be. So there's still, I think, fair questions being asked, not just about how much it will work, what kind of encouragement it will give to people to change their buying habits, but even they made big declarations how it's not going to uh, hurt any jobs and those types of things. I'm not sure how they know that. So here's just a recap for your information. I should put it up in front of me, but anyway. It's 20 cents a liter. And it's going to come into effect the 1st of September this year. It's going to apply to a bunch of the ready-made stuff, concentrated dispensed beverages. You can indeed not pay the 20 cents if you're going to buy some of the diet brands and what have you. But it's going to be applied to an awful lot of the sugar-added beverages. So the sports drinks, fruit-flavored drinks, all of the other syrups and all the like out there, 20 cents. Will that change people's buying habits and their choices? Maybe. But even the government knows that it might not work in full as it's intended because they forecast annually $9 million in revenue. So that to me says that they know people will still, they'll swallow the additional 20 cents a liter and they'll continue to buy whatever their favorite pop might be. Now, it might indeed encourage some folks, like other so-called sin taxes, to reduce their consumption. But by the government's admission and the $9 million in annual revenue, they know folks are going to continue on that path. Has it worked in other jurisdictions? It's a complicated answer, but in summary, not necessarily. They've tried it. And of course, it can indeed be a revenue stream. That's undeniable. But did it see the reduction in consumption? No. Where it has worked is when they applied an additional tax to the manufacturers and forcing them to reduce their sugar content. And that has had some appreciable impact because, let's just say whatever your favorite energy drink is or whatever, and some of those energy drinks, man, they've got heavy sugar content. But when the manufacturers put less in, especially in their run-of-the-mill sodas and pop, then, of course, even if your purchasing habits didn't change, the end result was you bought a product with less sugar. So 
it didn't jeopardize necessarily the manufacturer, the distributor, and or the end consumer. But in this case, you know, launching an awareness campaign about healthy beverages today, to me, is just setting the stage for what we know is coming very, very shortly on the 1st September, where they're going to implement that 20 cent tax. That's pretty interesting for sure. Uh, so I'm not so sure I should go down this path, but I'm going to. So the story I uh, talked about this morning, Arrive Can, the application that is pretty much in conjunction with your airport and your declaration to get back in the country. For some, they see it as some so, sort of social credit pathway. I don't know. And it does not include much more additional information beyond your vaccination status that you ever would have had to put on a piece of paper uh, declaration. Now, they may have updated the piece of paper, too, and asked you to check a box, vaccinated or not, fully vaccinated or not, or partially. I've only used it once, and I didn't go through Pearson, which is notably one of the more heavily impacted with delays airports in the country. And so the expert now is saying that it violates the charter. Okay, so be it. My question would be, look, we should all be intimately uh, concerned with protecting our own private information. Your social insurance number, your banking information, you know, the credit cards, you know the ones. But every now and then, I think we overlook a few right in front of us things. Like, remember... When the COVID, COVID alert app was offered and people said, no, I don't want government tracking me around, even though they weren't tracking you around, it wasn't GPS, it was Bluetooth. Privacy commissioners around the country, every single one of them said, it's fine to use, it's not going to jeopardize your privacy. But yet people said no. Why? Because the government was involved. And fair enough, cynicism and skepticism about what the government does, especially using technology, fine, and we should talk about it. But at the exact same time, Carrying around a smartphone, which knows more about you than the COVID alert app ever will, or arrive can, and like, I mean, even the story broken by James McLeod about Tim Hortons and what they knew about you. They were basically following you around all day long. But isn't it interesting? You know, there's some mistrust of the corporate sector. Of course there is. There is an extraordinary amount of distrust. And some, you know, being skeptical can be very, very healthy, especially when we're talking about government. But we do so many things that we think are innocuous, but they are absolutely in your business. And yet some of the applications put forward by the government, like for instance, COVID alert will always be one that comes to mind right away because that could have been a helpful tool. But because the government was involved, no, sir. Not putting it on my smartphone who's following me around all day, every day. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Dave is a good day to get on the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, to talk about whatever you like, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211 or toll-free long distance is 1-888-590-VOCM. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Jim, you're on the air. How are you? Oh, how are you, Patty? Good, oh. to, good to be on this morning. Happy to get a chance to talk to you and appreciate everything you always do. Happy to have you on the program. Jim, what's on your mind? Uh, I mean, I've been, I'm going to lead with this. I've driven forklift multiple times in my life, um, you know, and around different work sites and things like that. Um, and one of the things that you have to do, uh, if anybody's not aware, is every couple of years, maybe I think it's three or four years, like, depending on where you are, uh, you got to get recertified. You got to go do your course, uh, you know, show everybody that you're competent and that any of the rules and safety rules that have changed and so on and so forth. I think it's an excellent program, to be honest. Mm -hmm. some, say, some say it's a bit of a money racket. Probably is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, not a whole lot of changes on the forklift. But somewhere where we don't do things like that is on the roadways, Patty. Um, 
we get our driver's license. You know, some of us on the road today probably got their driver's license in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, or earlier. And some of us got it last week. Um, as I'm sure a lot of us are aware, uh, the road, the rules of the road, the roads and the vehicles, all of them have changed dramatically, and so is driver education. Yet, somehow, we're considered certified once, uh, and that's it. And that's all that's, that's really kept about us, and it's, it's in, infinitely more dangerous out on the roadways uh, than it is anywhere else. Um, like that, in my opinion. No doubt. I mean, the only time that you need to be recertified in any form or fashion is if you are driving a different class of vehicles, like, for instance, transport trucks and stuff, and then there's some medicals required, then when you reach the age of 75 and those types of things. But you're right. I hadn't really given it much thought. We don't say you graduated from Young Drivers of Canada. No one asks you to recite the rules of the road or renew your, your understanding of some of the safe driving habits until you sometime later in your senior years, 75 years of age. So it's a good point, Jim. In addition to that, and some people think that this is a potential money racket is, just look around. I mean, there's lots of real expensive exotic cars on the road, lots of stuff out there. But there's also a fair compliment to junkers. And nor do we ask you to inspect that as long as it remains in your own ownership. So there's, I think, two things there that make the roads less safe than they need to be. Fair ball. Absolutely right. And I mean, there's a lot of benefits, I think, to like, you know, I've had this radical idea, according to some of my peer group, <laughs> uh, of, of whenever your driver's license expires, you should have to do a recertification test of some sort. Uh, you know, a road test would be ideal, right? Because, you know, and I've said this to a few people that I get a kick out of it. They're like, well, I'd fail that for sure if I took that now. And that that's terrifying to me, <laughs> to be quite honest, hearing things like that. Um, and I witness it every day. I drive around the city a fair bit. And uh, there's a lot of people that are, are doing this cautious driving, as they call it, and stuff. But to me, that that's unpredictable. You know, the, the right of way is established for a reason, right? And it's, it's a thing there that says, you know, if you follow the right of way, there shouldn't be any – there should always be predictable. And it should be really any thought about who needs to go where, right? There's none of this giving someone a break. One of the worst things I see is on a two-lane, say, Topsail Road. Oh. Someone, someone's trying to turn left out of McDonald's, right? Yeah. And someone, buddy on the inside lane is like, come on, you're good, go on. And you're about to get smacked by a transport truck if you're not paying attention. And, you know, most of that is on the fellow who decides to take the break. But given the break is also providing an opportunity for a serious accident or at least some kind of uh, incident anyway. 100%. That's one of the ones that I think we see all too often and it's easily avoidable. Some of the notable roads, Kenmount, Topsail, you know, it might be a pain in the neck to just force yourself to turn right, pull into the next parking lot on the other side of the road so you can make another right to go be on your merry way. Sometimes I do it and save time during some of the busy times here on Kenmount in particular. But even just a refresher, in some of the very basics, like using your signals, your signal light, like that one I just don't get. And people pulling in the parking lots looking for a parking space when they're only halfway in off the main road and they're already scanning the parking lot drive in the parking lot and find a, a parking space there's so many little ones out there that it doesn't necessarily make you a bad driver but just a refresher every now and then you'd probably stop those bad habits i think so too you know and, and i mean that's that's something that i experience every day i work you know in the east end in the in the kitty Vitty area and uh i drive Duckworth street from beginning to end every day no matter what time of day it is sometimes i'm into work at 6 a.m Sometimes it's 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or noon, whatever it is. There's always, I've never gotten across it in the last eight, nine months where someone wasn't doing 20 kilometers an hour because they're looking at the side, looking for a spot to park, people watching, doing whatever. And then they're locking up the brakes real quick. Oh, no, and going again. And it's just, to me, that's so dangerous. And I can't help but think that it's this inherent thing with them that they're like, I'm being cautious, I'm being safe. And proper driver education in that regard and having to recertify every so many years, I think will go a long way with that. 
And one of the biggest things you could do, if, if you charge $100 uh, every time extra, right, every five years for a road test, you could pay for it, no problem, right? That's $20 a year uh, on top of your registration. Um, I believe it's five years. It might be four, but I believe it's five years. Um, and doing so would just dramatically reduce, in, in my opinion, I don't know the studies. There's probably statistics, and I'm sure some of your listeners can speak to it. But I think it would dramatically increase the safety and reduce even fender vendors or accidents on the roadways here. Which in turn, Patty, I very much believe insurance rates, which are through the roof. I had to pause myself right now. I've been driving 21, 22 years now, and my insurance rates have gone up almost every year. It makes no sense to me. I've had zero accidents. I don't have any speeding tickets. I'm, a, I'm a, probably the on their scale, the, the safest kind of thing. But it costs me more and more to drive every year because they keep telling me, well, there's more accidents. You know, you got to cover that, and it's the big pool. I mean, why aren't we implementing something as a society to prevent that and make it easier for people to be safer on the roadways? How about this? So there's some people that their initial driver training, whether it came from mom or dad or young drivers or one of the other companies out there, how about if you only had to be recertified if and when you lost so many demerit points on your license? You know, someone out there who has, you know, if you ever get charged going over 50 kilometers over the speed limits, put a trigger in place where we have identified that you're a problem driver so that you should recertify. Versus someone like yourself, for instance, if you've never had a ticket and you've had a clean driver's abstract, maybe it becomes a cash grab if we make you do it. But for someone who's obviously broken the rules of the road and maybe repeatedly, you know, come up with some formula so that they are forced to do it. It might just change their behavior behind the wheel. And secondly, if they are a bad driver, we get to get them back in as a captive audience and hopefully improve their driving habits before they have to go uh, uh, Canada's worst drivers. What's Andrew's last name again? The host of that show? Oh, young husband. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so there's a lot of people in the province belong on that program. But it's an interesting concept that you bring up. I'd like triggering a recertification based on proven habits or bad habits versus you, for instance. And the whole bit about paying more in insurance. Look, we're in a, I think we're in an Atlantic Canada actuarial pool. So I'm paying for other people's sins. I get it. You know, but even in the insurance companies, they admitted the quiet part out loud last year or the year before that some of the increase in premiums not only due to the actuarial pool and the numbers of accidents and compensation dollars paid, but also because they weren't doing well on their investments. What? You didn't do well on your investments and I'm paying for that? Like, what are you talking I, about? I had, I had that conversation with my insurance adjuster uh, provider a couple of years ago. I, I moved back from Alberta. And, you know, so when I speak about this, there's, listen, there's awful drivers everywhere, Patty. I was sure. driving on five continents. So I traveled the world for work for a long time. Um, they're everywhere, right? But I had that conversation. And I said, why has my insurance gone up 20% when I haven't had an accident or anything? They're like, well, there was a cap, you see, and, you know, we got to make money too. I was like, insurance companies need to make money. It's the biggest sc legal scam on the planet. Insurance, driver's insurances. I, I can't get over it. Like, you know, I'm paying in constantly into a pool that I will likely, or hopefully, I suppose, never draw from, ever. And and at the end of the year, or if I decide to stop driving, I don't get that money back. Nope. That goes into coffers of the insurance companies. I mean, Johnson's down there, I know they're not hurting, Patty. <laughs> like, I think no, anybody knows anybody running Johnson's insurance company isn't hurting, right? So uh, at the end of the day, if we want to challenge them saying, you know, like, well, we're here to provide a service, why don't we take the step further? implement this stuff or, and you know like i like your idea i get it you know the problem is how do you police bad drivers because i don't know if you've driven around st john's much there's no traffic division here there's no one out there policing anything you can do almost whatever you want and you might get caught what one two percent of the time i don't think i've seen a police officer on the road policing anybody 
you know, as far as traffic stops, other than maybe if they had a Rick Spider, you know, you hear about them on your, your program or the news, right? Like, oh, $20,000 in outstanding fines, you know, things like that. But I don't know. I, I really like to see everybody, uh, regardless of how good you are, and you know, because you, you can never be good enough. You know, education is never, nobody says, you know, life, lifelong learning is something that we promote. I mean, you can never be more educated. You can never have more information. Um, and again, I think it would make everybody safe. It goes to your point where you're paying for bad driver's habits across Atlantic Canada. Well, if we can reduce the driver's bad habits across Canada, across Atlantic, across Newfoundland, Labrador, like that would make it better for everybody, I think. Yeah, save me money, keep me safer. I, I like everything about it. And, you know, I've, I've always been torn about the cash grab business as it pertains to older vehicles that are obviously in distinct need of repair. You know, whether we're going around on the baloney skin tires or the brakes are shot, the <laughs> suspension is shot, the exhaust is blown up. You know, at some point, it probably makes sense, too, to have an inspection, even if it's my vehicle. I bought it new. I'm trying to take care of it, but the repair bills are piling up. I know I shouldn't have it on the road, but it's my only vehicle. You're just putting yourself and me at risk at the same time so there's got to be a way we can figure that out as opposed to just say carte blanche every time your vehicle hits whatever age or whatever kilometers you must get an inspection but there's a lot of junkers out there too and you know full well that that's not helping keep the roadway safe either sure throw it into it if we got to get a driver's test every five years right you got to bring your vehicle with you yeah so throw that in there, you know? Yeah. Go write the written test, drop it off, have the boys look at it, and then go to your driver's test. Perfect. Yeah, it's not like I'm going to win to do it in your Omni or Horizon or whatever it is we did our driver's test on. Uh, <laughs> I had a Dodge Omni when I was younger. Was <laughs> Jim, appreciate uh, the time this morning. Uh, anything else before we say goodbye? Uh, you know what? I, I think the only other thing that I wanted to say about that, and the other thing that I, I, I've talked to you before actually about it, is cycling in the city. I think that the big problem with people uh, not knowing how to drive around cyclists is because it wasn't a big thing amongst those 60s, 70s, 80s uh, people who got their drivers. Like, there wasn't a lot of cyclists around. It wasn't a big thing with rules of the road and share of the road. And I think that would also help our cyclist program a lot, too, is making sure people were aware to pay attention to those things and not be so frustrated, right? They don't belong on the road. It's like, well, they have well, for they about do. 25 years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know. And there's more cars than ever before. The population has grown. Consequently, the population of cars has grown exponentially in the last 20 years since or however long I've been back in the province. Uh, good to have you on, Jim. Drive safe. Cheers. You too, buddy. See All you. the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, going in to drive in the old Horizon or the Omni. That was the popular driver's ed vehicle. Another quick Canada Summer Games note. This year recognized by the Canada Games Hall of Honor, Ron McLean. Mike Strange, former amateur boxer, wicked career, and Olympian Katrina LeMay-Done. Of course, she was our chef de mission for the Beijing Olympic Games as well, so there's some beauties there. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. So in this province, when we talk about legal aid, by and large, the focus has been on people who have been charged with serious crimes asking to opt out of a legal aid representative to get a private sector lawyer. In other parts of the country, now, look, the justice system is adversarial by its very nature. But you need to have adequate representation on both sides for the air of fairness. In this province, we talk about legal aid through that one lens, but it is so crucially important to have legal aid sufficiently funded, not just as a stepping stone for a bigger, better job in the private sector as a lawyer, but for the obvious needs to be represented by competent, coherent counsel, regardless of who you are. In the province of Alberta, the big story out there is the government is gutting legal aid. 
to make the David versus Goliath, even David times 100, or pardon me, Goliath times 100, makes it so patently unfair that any re reduction in funding for legal aid has disastrous outcomes. Let's go to line number two, say good morning to Colin. Good morning, Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Doing pretty good. Uh, I'm pleased that you sent along that particular story. Of course, we try to keep abreast of what's happening, but I had no idea that it was becoming so bad for legal aid representation in the province of Alberta. They're gutting it. The city of Red Deer, six legal aid attorneys. Not good enough. What's happening? Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's outrageous, really. Uh, that was an article I sent you from Canadian Lawyer Magazine, uh, written by Ottawa-based lawyer Michael Spratt. He's a criminal defense lawyer there. And uh, the Kenny government is just, they're just destroying the uh, legal aids funding system in the province of Alberta. If you, um, the, the cap for uh, for receiving legal aid is uh, $20,000 per year uh, yeah. income. And uh, if you make over that, then uh, you don't qualify. So basically, uh, you're right at the poverty, the poverty level for a single uh, adult with no dependents uh, in this country, right? If you live in that province, and uh, you know the, the the access to to uh, legal aid is essential, no matter where you live in this country, whether you whether you live in Newfoundland and Labrador or or the Yukon or Alberta or anywhere else. Uh, if you're charged with a criminal offense and you cannot afford a private lawyer, uh, your your um, your representation by a, a, a legal aid counsel uh, in a criminal matter is essential to, to for fairness, uh, for balance in the justice system. You're going up against a crown attorney like Mr. Spratt points out in his uh, excellent article, who's uh, very well trained, has lots of experience, has uh, access to infinite resources. You're talking about a crown prosecutor, so they can they can access uh, experts, forensic experts, um, uh, private detectives, something down the line. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. So you know it, the, the scales have to be balanced here, and as you quite rightly point out, it's an adversarial system. So if you if you make over twenty thousand dollars a year, and you don't have to be rich, you could be working full time, making fifteen bucks an hour. You're making six hundred dollars a week. That's thirty thousand dollars a year. You don't qualify for legal aid in Alberta. If you're living in Calgary, how much are you going to be, or Edmonton, and the big cities, how much are you going to be paying in rent for an apartment? $2,000 a month? $2,500 a month? Well, I mean, we talk about even affordable housing, 30% of your net income. In Edmonton, I'm going to take a guess that would make your rent in and around, well, 1000 bucks. So outside of my $40,000 job and my necessities of life, and now all of a sudden I have to go up against the behemoth that is the state and or an insurance company or whatever the case may be. You know, I guess insurance is a bad example because generally you can get a lawyer and pay in the aftermath if you win a, win a, a settlement. But, you know, to have the adversarial system and the balances and the scales of justice so out of whack. Even if people are, you know, government has to be show restraint when spending money. You're asking for it to be worse. The second most expensive thing in the country is a night in the prison. So if we're going to all of a sudden, because of incompetent or incoherent or insufficient representation, or the lack of access to representation, period, then what are we talking about? The vast majority of people charged with a crime or in a civil matter in this country, for that matter, are not trained attorneys. So unless they get the 
represent, representation they deserve. We have created a, a place where it would be, if you want to talk about kangaroo court, well, Skippy will be holding the gavel. Absolutely. And uh, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be facing a murder charge. You no. don't be facing an impaired driving charge. Sure. You know, and you could require uh, a toxicologist to calculate your, you know, your blood alcohol concentration at the time you were allegedly driving the vehicle. There could be problems or issues with the breathalyzer. You might need an expert for that. The roadside breath test uh, device. Uh, you're calling in these experts to charge maybe a thousand dollars a day to appear in court, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no way you're going to be able to afford that. And uh, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, the, the Trudeau government revamped the uh, impaired driving legislation almost four years ago now. And they increased the maximum sentence for impaired driving from five years to 10 years if it's prosecuted by indictment. So they doubled the amount of time you can spend in prison. But now you have provincial governments uh, like in Alberta and also Ontario with the Ford government. The Ford government cut uh, uh, spending there on legal aid by $135 million. So, you know, increase the sentences for impaired, for example, from five years to 10 years, double it. But uh, we're going to make it even harder now for people to get legal aid. You know, if you're charged with impaired driving and you elect to go to uh, provincial court, let's say you go to a provincial court where there's no jury selection, there's no preliminary hearing, so it's going to be cheaper on you. That could still cost you probably sixty or $70,000 for a trial if you plead not guilty. You know, the ramifications of being convicted of impaired, you get a criminal record. Your uh, your insurance rates will dramatically rise upon the conviction. You know, for insurance, you have to go to a facility association because you're such a risk. Uh, you get the criminal record. You get a mandatory minimum fine. You know, your license is gone for one at least one year. Uh, if you drive for a living, if you're a taxi driver, guess what? You lost your job now, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and part of that story, too, is beyond legal aid. They, one of the paragraphs, I believe, the sentences, the opening sentence, uh, the criminal defense lawyer brain drain, I think is what they refer to, is a real problem across the country. I wasn't aware of that, but it kind of makes sense to me. So people are worried about living under the thumb of the state. And we'll focus in on, you know, the big glossy headlines of arrive can apps and all these types of things. Something as fundamental as properly funded legal aid systems is just such a big deal that this should be a story around the country that now all of a sudden I'm going to take a look at what's happening with our legal aid uh, system and what's happening at legal aid itself. And then a number of attorneys that have. I mean, the level of competence at legal aid is far greater than people think it is as well. I mean, remember the late John Hogan, one of the finest attorneys in the province, to a man, to a woman, they would say that, legal aid his entire career. People opting out of a legal aid attorney for a, a private sector notable name, regarding Mr. Buckingham or Percy or whoever, when in fact, the amount of time spent in the courtroom with some of those serious charges, the people leading the league are legal aid representatives. So there's Absolutely. so much to the legal aid conversation. I'm going to dig in a little further and maybe ask the, uh, the gentleman who we've had on the show in the past at the helm of legal aid to come on and talk about this story and what's happening in this province. Yeah, it's, it's essential that uh, we have this conversation. And, and members of the criminal defense bar all across this country, whether they're legal aid practitioners or they're members of the private bar, and criminal defense lawyer representing a client in court is a check on state power. That person, that man or woman representing that client is a check on state power to ensure that the state acts lawfully and fairly according to the rules of evidence and procedure in carrying out a prosecution. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of countries don't have that. Look at what happened in Russia with Brittany Griner, right? 
the defense lawyers there. This is a this is a kangaroo court in Russia. They're there. This it's part of a show trial. They know the the verdict for her was baked into the cake. You know, ninety nine percent conviction rates. Putin uh, calls the shots. There's no uh, rule of law in that country. There's no check on state power. If you speak out, you're going to get thrown off a balcony of a 50-story condo. Similar to the proceedings uh, associated with the SPAB or Corvig. Same thing. Same thing. So members of the criminal defense bar, whether they're legal aid lawyers or members of the private bar, they are a check on state power. They are what stand between you and the awesome power of the state and its infinite resources. So people need to think about that, right? 100%. Colin, I I appreciate you sending along the story, and I thank you for your time this morning. Cheers, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Mike makes a good point on Twitter. He's absolutely right. You know, access to a legal aid attorney in a criminal matter, we understand it. It's well accepted and understood practice. But then you get into the other side of the justice system in the civil matters, whether it be governments or big companies or insurance companies or whatever corporate entity we're talking about, they have the time, the money, and the resources to simply wait you out. Bury you in paperwork. You don't have the adequate representation because you don't have the money. Consequently, people fold because they just don't have any of those aforementioned requirements. Money, resources, time to take on the big entity in a civil matter. So, you know, something as fundamental is adequate representation especially in criminal matters just imagine gutting legal aid and the people wonder what it means by taking uh, on the state and being under the, under the thumb and then the mention of Brittany Griner basketball player convicted to uh, and sentenced to nine years in prison for possession of uh, less than a gram of cannabis oil or something or other and then the two what people call the two Michaels Michael Spavor and Michael Corvig so when we throw around Words and phrases, you know, tyranny and dictatorship and all those types of things that we hear more and more of these days. Maybe just to look at some of the other issues in other countries and get a better understanding of what some of those words really mean. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line one. Albert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Uh, uh, not bad. Listen, I got a couple of questions for you. First sure. one is uh, daily savings time. Are we going back to to the uh, normal one, or just staying as we are now? I don't know. There's any change coming. No, but they were talking about there just just when the other one came in there, and they were going to change it. Or they may change it, you were saying, right? Well, there's a conversation every single year about whether or not we should walk away from daylight savings the way we understand it today. I remember this second time now, I said James McLeod's uh, name this morning, but he used to focus on it all the time. And because of it, we spoke about it a fair bit. Canada first introduced daylight savings time, if I'm not mistaken, in early 1900s, maybe 1907 or somewhere in that neighborhood. When the Germans finally implemented it, all of a sudden it became a worldwide thing. The UK and Australia, many other countries and it was for farming particular reasons and for health related matters but i think there's a good argument to be made for walking away from daylight savings yeah i i think the same thing too right because i think it's garbage you know right just me thinking my, my opinion now and because uh, I thought the government was going to change that, but I haven't heard no update on it lately, eh? No, me neither. I don't. You know, I've only recall hearing conversations about whether or not we should continue down that path. Not sure I've heard anything about a formal change coming. Not to my knowledge, anyway, Albert. 
because they were going to, like they said, you know, let it rest for now, and that was the first day this year, right? And let it rest, and they were going to check it out and and go on from there. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll have to have a look, but, you know, some obviously lots of things happen that I don't see or can't recall, but I will have a look at this one uh, when I get a break. I don't think there's any formal change coming. Okay, uh, another, the other question was the nurse practitioners. Yep. Uh, they were talking about um, uh, that, you know, the government's going to pay, 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 pay for your visit to the, to the nurse practitioners. Well, they're looking at it. The story, the most recent story on that was the government is considering whether or not nurse practitioners will set up their own private clinic and bill MCP directly. Right now, they can set it up, but it's an average of around 30 bucks a visit for the first visit. Yeah, I pay 35 Okay. You know, and uh, it's uh, like, I don't know, it seems like to me it's uh, a government rather um, go that way. I, I think eventually we, because we're, we're lack of doctors, and it's not cheaper for us probably to go away and nurse practitioners. Well, I don't really understand the rationale behind it. Like, interestingly, Dave just told me during the break that uh, Minister of Health Tom Osborne is coming on this program. I can put that on the list because if we see emergency rooms being worked over capacity, people don't have family doctors, you know, going to emergency for something that the nurse practitioner could absolutely deal with. But not everybody's got 30 bucks to just pay for that service when, in fact, if we were billing MCP, because it's only about money. It's not about their training or their accreditation. It's simply about money, in my personal opinion. So I can put that on my list for the minister but even add to that the issue I've been speaking about a couple of days this week is physician assistance I wasn't really even sure what a physician assistant was until I saw a story early in the week they can do all kinds of things they can be part of the collaborative care clinics just like nurse practitioners and licensed practical nurses there's 900 of them practicing in the country they are trained at some of the most notable universities they've been working in the Canadian Armed Forces for 40 years but we don't acknowledge them in the Health Professions Act the legislation in this province consequently we don't use them and we should yeah, I understand what you're saying, but you know, my opinion again is that that seemingly is water, water, watering down our, our medical system. How so? Because, but one time we had, a, we always had a doctor, family doctor, right? Yeah. I've had a family doctor for about three years now, four years. Well, it's been a long time since I had one. Yeah, you know, no, no family doctor. I mean, a nurse practitioner is not a doctor. No, but they don't pretend okay. to be. But not everything you go see your family doctor for, do you need to see a family doctor? No, I understand that too, right? Yeah. But you feel a lot more safer when you see a family doctor than a practitioner. I, I see one. They're okay, right? But I don't think I would put my life in the reins. It's just me. Well, listen, fair enough. Probably what I maybe should play a role in is to give us all a better understanding of exactly what kind of training and what they're able to do, whether it be a nurse practitioner or a licensed practical nurse or anybody else, because the last time I had to deal with healthcare, I dealt with an LPN. That's all I needed. I didn't need to see a doctor. All I needed to see was that particular lady who was terrific. But people have that built-in confidence. They see the white coat and the credentials on the wall that says medical doctor. That gives them the level of comfort they need but some of the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis with healthcare, maybe all we needed was an lpn or a nurse practitioner or a pharmacist or whoever so uh, maybe we should do talk talk more about what they are actually trained to do what they're capable of because a lot of people feel exactly like you do albert they want to see a doctor they don't want to see anybody else in the healthcare world they want a doctor i, I would agree with you i went to a, went to last time went to an lp the nurse practitioner and i got arthritis in my knees and uh, 
he said, I, I, I can't do anything with that. He said, you got to go up to the hospital. So go up to the hospital, oh, yeah. He said that uh, you you, you got to get needles, he said, and, and, and steroids put in your knees. He said, no, I, 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 can't, I can't do that. So he said, I may have come back for some training, he said, for a day's training for to, to do that. But I always taught a nurse, I wouldn't say it to a man, right? He said, I always taught a nurse, I mean, that's all they do in the hospital, give you needles. There's a lot of needles being poked about in the hospital, that's true. Uh, and I don't know about specifics of whether or not I need one healthcare professional or another to administer X, Y, and Z, but we can try and figure out and have those types of conversations because, you know, for instance, if there was an ailment that was ailing you and based on what we know from an LPN or a nurse practitioner, their training, what their credentials say, and maybe all you need to see was that person versus hoping to get in to see a GP, a medical doctor or a family doctor or whatever, because sometimes we just don't need to see that particular discipline. We just need whoever's trained to give us whatever it is, a prescription or to treat my burn or my wound or stitch me up or whatever the case may be. You know, years ago, you could go to see a doctor anytime at all. Sure. No time, no time into the hospital on your own again. Now you go up to hospital, you don't, you got to take lunch. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, that's true, unfortunately. I shouldn't right. be giggling because it's real. Yeah, you got to take lunch with you. What, what happened to the system? Well, that's a big question, um, and I'll just wrap it up, then I'll give you the last word. Is this questions that I've been trying to see if we can wrap our mind around is let's just pick a date, 2017. How many doctors were working in the province in 2017? How many have retired since? How many left? Why did they leave? How many graduates from Mons Med School are still here working in the province? How many doctors who are registered as doctors are seeing patients or working as opposed to academic research or instructors at the med school? How, you know, there's more doctors here than ever before, but people can't see a doctor. So we'd need to understand a bit more as to why. Yeah, like the one mid school over there, right? Yeah. I mean, we got one of the best mid schools in Canada, it's in my good, opinion. It's a good medical school. Its reputation it is, is pretty good. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, the thing is that we're, we're not getting our, our, the bang for our buck. It's a separate He's budget. Going to the mid school and passing the mid school, and, and then they're going on where everybody wants to go. It was some of them. Yeah, some of them, for and sure. You take you take some of those places there, like Fogo and, and uh, down to Arbor Britain. You know, they're, they got no doctors, and they're crying, but they got uh, students, doctors from their own town that went to mid school in St. John's and got it, got it gone with somewhere. Yeah, there's, you know. You, you can't tell those fellows, when, once they get that piece of paper in their hand, you can't tell those fellows you've got to go back to your hometown for, for six months or a year. They're not going back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, very quickly, Albert, before I do have to go, so this fellow sent along an email, and I, I knew this happened in the United States, that they, they passed a bill called the Sunshine Protection Act. It might mean we're on permanent daylight savings time next year, but that's, of course, in the States. Now, back in 2020, there was legislation tabled in Ontario that didn't go anywhere, so maybe change is coming, but officially not quite yet. Well, I'm, I hope you do change it, right? Cause we, we, we've, been, we've been in the dark too long. <laughs> Appreciate the time, Albert. Thanks for okay, the call. Buddy. All okay. the best. All right, bye-bye. Uh, I've got a couple of people asking me to do a couple of shout-outs. Let's start with this one. So this is an impromptu gathering tonight for the graduates from PwC, Prince of Wales Collegiate, and the class of 1971. They're asking their old classmates to pop by Big Ben's Pub there in Churchill Square for a pint or whatever is your favorite 
your favorite bevy. So a drop-in meetup with all classmates. That's an email from one of the listeners. So there you go. Class of 71 from PwC. Big Ben's tonight, 5 to 9. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Very quickly before we go to the phone lines, a listener via email just asked if the Beta Spare Highway is open at this moment. And yes, it is. Apparently, it's, they're hoping to have it open for the entire day. Another reassessment coming tomorrow morning. But yes, the Beta Spare Highway is open today. Let's go to line number two. David, you're on the air. Hello, Mr. Daly. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Yeah, come on. Thank you. I'd like to talk about low rental housing. Sure. Like, uh, I'm here at Connection for Seniors now, going on 16 weeks. I can't get anything with housing. They said there's nothing out there with housing. And the private uh, sector, that's gone downhill too. There's no one, nothing. I can't get apartment anywhere in this city. Can you believe I can. Vacancy rate is around 3%. It's ridiculous. Like, uh, and there's seven people here in this shelter, and no one can get an apartment. Hello? Uh, I, hear, I hear the housing crunch conversation all the time, sir. I mean, I don't even know where we go when we talk about affordable housing and they define it as 30% of your net income, you know, someone who, uh, in around $30,000, $650 does not get you a whole lot here. And even if you're lucky enough to have access to an apartment and able to afford it, it's becoming a major problem. Do you know what? I'm paying $500 here a month in the shelter here. Are you? Yeah. You know, uh, and that's coming out of my own expense money. So it's time for the premium to you know, look at low-income housing for, for, for seniors. Really time. I don't dispute it. We've got, you know, like, and there's a new phenomenon, we're told, by uh, Lisa down at Circle about families who are homeless. You know, not just individuals, which we always view as the homeless-related matter, but not just talk about more and more families are homeless. And not even a shelter in place for a family looking for a safe place to live with a roof over their head. So I don't know where we go with this housing issue. And how we got here is also a bit confusing. So whether it be the price of the properties went up and the landlords cashed out and whoever bought it says, well, we're not we're not involved and we don't want to be landlords, whether they turn their rental units into Airbnbs and consequently that unit is off the market. I don't know. But very quickly, I just saw this pop in. Uh, I know someone who has a bachelor apartment available. Yeah. Just send me an email. You want to take his number? Yes, uh, yes, I will. Okay, 738-4567. Yeah, and this is a reputable person. His name, ask for Darren when you call. Yeah. Uh, and these are quality people, so there's no worries there. Okay, then. That'll be great. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I pass this bar Livingstone Street nearly every night, right? And all the apartments vacant there is unreal. But the two-bedroom apartments, single people can't get them, right? Single men. Sure, I understand. But they're all going, like, <laughs> like they're getting nothing for them. Leaving them on the dead there and getting nothing for them. That don't make sense. No, and I'm not familiar with exactly what we're talking about, so I don't have much to say about it. But hopefully what I just helped, uh, gave you insofar as Darren's number, yes. he says they have a bachelor apartment available. You might have locked out. Okay. Can you give me the number again, my bud? Sure, I can. It's uh, 738 Yeah. Four five six seven. 
Thank you very much. You're more than welcome, David. You have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Peter, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, buddy. Uh, it's Peter Leonard. Or, uh, fish harbors are from uh, 3PS. and. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're aware of that, but for those who don't know, you know, this morning uh, I would like to express my condolence to uh, the family of the late Reg Annesley. He was a secretary treasurer for the FMVW, as most people would know. And, uh, you know, back in the days of Richard Cash and Des McGraw and uh, Reg Annesley, they're the ones that uh, really put the... the Fish Harbors Union in place, you know, like uh, back then it was uh, and Errol McCurdy uh, uh, for a time worked with uh, Red Janesley also and uh, I found the union to be exceptionally well at that time but uh, Reg is a it's a big loss to the labor movement and uh, when he was with the uh, FFAW I had a good working relationship with him, and I found him to be a very honest, respectable man. And again, I'd like to express my condolences to his family. I'm sure he lived a, a good life and a family life, and uh, that's what I would like to uh, pass on. I knew Reg a little bit. Outside of uh, professional capacity, he was a nice man. He was very kind and generous to me. He had a lot of information that he was happy to share with me. So I liked Reg, and it's a sad story to see him gone. I think he was 76, was he? Yes, uh, yeah, and uh, still in the workforce, I do believe, yes. Uh, Anyway, uh, having said that, uh, I'd just like to move on to uh, congratulate Lana Payne, National Unifor leader. I guess she'll take the place of Jerry Diaz, if I understand it right. I knew Lana back uh, years ago and had a good working relationship with her, you know. But uh, since that, well, she moved on. I guess I moved on in my ways, too. But anyway, I'd like to say congratulations to her. A lady from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, right across uh, Canada nationally. It's uh, nationally and and more Canada. But... uh, it's a big uh, undertaking for her, and I wish her all the best. Well, she's the president of a union representing 300,000 approximate people in the country. It's a big one, big job. That's true, yes, yeah. And uh, there's another thing that uh, I'd like to speak about this morning, and uh, concerns the uh, FFAW and the fish harvesters of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, that is the election for the upcoming uh Secretary Treasurer uh, position with the FFAW and uh, to replace Robert Kagan. And uh, if I said it right, Kean, Robert Kean. And uh, the nomination ballots are, are out, and apparently they're going back to the FFAW office. And, uh, and anybody who signed the card with uh, Fish and Ale or any other organization, I guess, is not allowed to uh, run for a position, not to guess. I think it's clearly stated that uh, we're, uh, we're not allowed to run for a position. Now, I, I have no intention to run a position, you know, like uh, my age right now. Like I think there's enough uh, Joe Biden to lead in the helm. And, uh, but there is people out there that uh, should have a chance in my opinion, Patty, to have a fair 
kick at the cat, you know, and getting in there. Because, like, we know, like, uh, you know, our president, he was sort of groomed in from Earl McCurdy and halfway during the elections the way they do things. And then, you know, like, when Rage left, well, you know, Dave Decker was gloomed in, and then Robert Keane, the same thing, you know. So when somebody get in there, it's harder to have a harder to get them out than it is to uh, have an election like this where everybody should have the right to run. But anyway, uh, like I'm not speaking for myself, but I do know people that would probably make a good secretary treasurer, and that's somebody that's been there for the last 20, 30, 40 years around the office and then all of a sudden phoned in to uh, take his place, you know. Uh, and uh, so, like, uh, I would like someone with authority from the FFAW to come on your program and uh, just outline, you know, where those ballots are going to be going when they are mailed back. And if somebody who signed a card within the last three years with Chanel, are we entitled to nominate somebody to run? So that that's Two questions there. One has already been answered. You are not allowed to run if you sign a car with you in the last three years. But the two that I would, and people don't understand this because I hear it in the grapevine, you know, on the street, you know, can we nominate somebody and uh, can we, uh, well, I'll ask me train a doctor that time. Anyway. Well, I don't know, but it, it sounds a bit strange. Uh, this year that you can't nominate someone who signed a car to an entity that is there is no such thing. There is no fishnel. So how can that be something? I mean that that's particularly odd. I know why they said it back back in the day when the row was ongoing. I know the thought behind it, but it's not even a thing. There is no fishnel. So what are we talking about? No, I, I really don't know either. But uh, having said that, you know, like uh, if. Uh, Fishnel had good support, and if we had a fair, if the people had a fair chance, the harvesters had a fair chance. I think you know, like they could put a person in secretary treasurer of their choice in there. If there, uh, I don't know if they're allowed to vote. I don't know where the votes are going to, and I don't know if we can nominate somebody. But there is good people. I don't have to be a man, you know. There's good women who. Uh, Alana Payne is a prime example that, you know, could probably go there and uh, do a good job, you know. And people with high portfolios, like in politics and stuff like that, you know, and, you know, like uh, Robert Keegan now, you know, like he stepped down because of family problems and stuff like that, you know. But unless something changed in the families, you know, I, I could never understand it for the like of me, especially in politics. They had the same family when they ran, you know, took the job on. But uh, unless something changed in the family, well, uh, it's not a legitimate reason for me to accept, you know, if nothing changed. But uh, but anyway, i just like this to be fair. i like for the harvesters of, uh, of Newfoundland and Labrador have the right to put in a person in that office of their choice. Uh, we have one Ray Janice. May soul rest in peace. And we had one David Decker and one Robert Hagen, Kean, 
and I don't think there's many harvesters wish neither one of them back. So uh, that's uh, my thoughts on that today. And we also had the racket about who's a fish harvester, which I I know it's not funny, but I could scratch my head about that one for quite a long time. Uh, Peter, I'm late for the news, but I appreciate your, your comments on uh, the passing of Reg Anstey and opening up the election to anybody who wants to run, regardless if they signed a card for Fish and Nile or not. I will get clarification from the union ASAP. Yes, and I would like for the harvesters would like for this to go, the ballots to go, and the nomination forms to go to an independent uh, firm. Appreciate this, Peter. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, it is indeed time for the newscast. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. It's a pleasure to uh, be on the air with you. Um, looking forward to uh, a discussion on, I think, a couple of topics. Uh, I guess an update on uh, what Central Health are doing, um, some initiatives uh, with the NLMA and uh, with some of the health authorities. So I don't know if you have any questions before. I do. I have a couple of questions. Uh, certainly with Central Health, there's been a lot going on. And the province is close to uh, securing a doctor for Bonobus, all those types of things. But I generally try to avoid this. But I'm going to ask you just quickly to go back to your old portfolio of education. I have one specific question. It was about preparedness for post-secondary. There was a high school symposium that happened a couple of months ago or a month and a half ago. It was all about making sure that the support systems were in place for graduates who may think that they need a little bit of assistance before they get into whatever school, CRA, Marine Institute, or CNA, pardon me, Marine Institute or Memorial University. What happened with the symposium? Uh, well, you know, I won't go into too much detail because I know it's now Minister Haggy's shop, but I will say that the symposium was a great success. Uh, all participants in the symposium uh, had indicated that, you know, it was the first time CNA, the private colleges, a memorial, and the department had gotten together to talk about challenges, uh, to talk about solutions. So it was well received by the participants, and, uh, you know, work from from that symposium was to continue uh, to make it more efficient and and have a greater level of collaboration between all stakeholders and um, you know from there i guess uh, you know it's it's best to speak with uh, the Minister of Education on the work that's ongoing since the symposium. Yeah, I, I could do exactly that. I was just, I've been long looking for some details and what additional supports may have been put in place, but I will follow up with the Minister currently responsible. What I'd like to start with inside of healthcare, and we can broach all the topics that you uh, brought forward, is that there's a new pilot project in place to entice retired family physicians to come back to the workforce. There's a variety of different moves inside it about covering costs of licensing fees or what have you. Where are we in exactly how does it work and has anyone taken advantage well we're hoping uh, we will get physicians take advantage uh, we're not expecting um, you know the floodgates to open with retired physicians but even if we get one or two then this initiative is successful um, this is just one building block in the foundation of solving the issues around recruitment and retention and the availability of healthcare professionals. So what this initiative does, it's in collaboration uh, with the NLMA. Um, we're doing it as a pilot project uh, to help entice retired physicians to 
provide some service uh, within either the, the hospital setting, a clinic setting, uh, a, a family practice setting. Um, so the provincial government will cover the costs of licensing fees and liability protection for eligible retired physicians um, and provide a, a, a prorated rural retention bonus similar to what other physicians are getting um, in, in, in the communities where it's harder to fill. The NLMA will waive membership fees uh, for their currently retired physicians. So this is one of the ways in which the department and the NLMA have been working together, uh, thinking of solutions, um, cooperating and, and collaborating on resolving some of the uh, availability of physician issues. Another healthcare professional that I haven't even given any consideration to, but I read a story coming from the province of Manitoba, and it's about physician assistants. There's some 900 practicing in the country, trained at McMaster, University of Toronto, University of Manitoba. They've been in the Canadian Forces uh, working for some 40 years, but they're not recognized under the Health Professions Act in this province. Are you aware of the discipline itself, and are we going to do anything to maybe try to attract some of them? There's one lady who wants to come. Her husband, by the way, is a doctor, but she won't come because they don't... She can't get recognized and work in this province. Can they be part of filling the gaps? I think so, um, and the department are looking at that. I know we've had discussions with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Um, you know, the, very close in terms of the scope of practice of nurse practitioners. Um, you know, so we have nurse practitioners operating in the province currently and the scopes of practice are similar um, there are some differences in what nurse practitioners can do and what physician assistants can do uh, but i i do believe that it can be um, part of the solution for newfoundland and labrador so we've we've had some discussions we are looking at it um, and examining the issue with the college of physicians and surgeons I know it's always uh, helpful when we get have time with the minister responsible on the program, but one of probably the toughest jobs and one of the most important jobs right now is in the hands of Dr. Megan Hayes, the deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention. You know, we'll reach out and let her and her office answer whether or not she can come on this program and speak, because we don't usually get to speak with senior bureaucrats, but can you give us an idea of the new structure or formulation of some of these approaches to recruit and retain? Because I know it's not a one-size-fits-all, working in, on Fogo or Belle Island or St. John's or Burgio or St. Anthony are all different things, but what kind of advancements has Dr. Hayes in her office made? Well, we have, uh, I meet with Dr. Hayes several times a week. Um, she is the ADM uh, in the department responsible for recruitment and retention. So that office, which the Premier set up to try and deal with some of the issues, uh, we've just recently added additional staff to the office. We are recruiting further staff for that office. I know the regional health authorities have put additional resources in place. Um, we have called all of the regional health authorities uh, together. Uh, we've had two meetings with them so far uh, where we are starting to work uh, collaboratively, uh, have each of the health authorities uh, looking at the recruitment and retention practices. Um, you know, quite simply, you know, we have to do a better job of recruitment and retention. Um, we see across Canada 
Uh, every province is dealing with the same challenge. Globally, uh, con other countries are dealing with the same challenge of a shortage of healthcare professionals. We see in the media every day uh, stories similar to what is happening in this province in terms of emergency department diversions or people not able to have access to physicians. So it means we need to get better. We need to be more competitive. We need to work together. We need to find new solutions uh, in terms of recruitment and retention. It is a top focus of the Premier. It's a top focus of mine. And uh, uh, Dr. Hayes has been put in place to work with the health authorities uh, to bring uh, the department and the health authorities together. Uh, when I reached out to the health authorities and you know, asked that we put the task force together uh, on collaboration and working together and looking at the challenges that some authorities find as unique challenges or collectively all of them find as challenges and we can work through those challenges, um, you know, make, lift some of the restrictions that were in place in terms of health authorities um, being able to recruit either full-time or, or locums. Um, you know, so essentially it is streamlining, modernizing, um, finding efficiencies and becoming more competitive in terms of recruitment and retention. Being competitive is generally referred to as money. Like even in the deal that the province just struck between the government and the Professional Association of Residents of Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, that's the postgraduate medical trainees, it was talked about parity with the rest of the Maritimes and insofar as their pay goes. But we know, whether it be the doctor on Bell Island and others who, it's not necessarily the be-all and end-all. They're looking for flexibility and work-life balance and things that we all are as professionals. So where can the province be creative on that front? Because we can say, okay, what was in the province of British Columbia, year two students are now making year three money, or pardon me, year two graduates are making year three money, but that might not be enough to attract people here. So it's flexibility, it's work-life balance, it's opportunity for their families, amenities. What are we doing on that front? Because for me, that's going to be much more attractive for a doctor who's a highly mobile, in-demand professional. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, while... You know, a salary for a healthcare professional is important, and that is one of the areas where they look to uh, determine where they want to work. It is work-life balance, and it is other amenities that are important as well. And, you know, we will be working with municipalities as well uh, in ensuring that, you know, uh, healthcare professionals are welcome. I know, for example, one community that we have... Um, recruited some shifts from a, a physician in St. John's to work in that community. Um, childcare was a, a, an issue for them and the lack of childcare in, in that community. So working with the community to ensure that childcare is available uh, as one example of work-life balance, amenities, making families feel comfortable. So we all have a role to play there. The department, uh, the health authorities, and the communities have a role to play to ensure that uh, we're able to attract and retain healthcare professionals 
throughout the province. That balance has probably seen no more than it is inside the ranks of registered nurses. 600 vacancies, 900 on the verge of retirement, 700 when surveyed, talk about leaving the profession altogether or going from permanent full-time down to casual. So it's not necessarily about money for them because if it was, we'd have more nurses even in the churn. So that's just another area. The, the government in your department, and you said that you're looking at nurse practitioners setting up a private clinic with the ability to build MCP. As opposed to where are we in that conversation, what's the argument against that? Because doesn't that alleviate some burden and stress on the system itself? So what is the argument people make to you as to why that's not appropriate? Well, it's a complex issue. Um, you know, it, it is complex. There's no question about it. We are looking at the scope of practice of all of our healthcare professionals. One of the things that the Health Accord NL talks about is having our uh, healthcare professionals work to their full scope of practice. Um, you know, as, as we just talked about, uh, you know, money is not the only aspect of recruiting and retaining individuals in, in a certain area uh, to, to work. Uh, so we are looking at the scope of practice of our nurse practitioners and, um, you know, looking at utilizing, better utilizing and skilling up in areas where nurse practitioners are able to um, lead a, a team of other health professionals in an emergency department where, um, you know, we'd have um, a virtual care, essentially uh, the, the uh, support of a physician virtually looking at uh, collaborative care clinics throughout the province. We've got a number in the province now as a pilot project where, you know, a patient would belong to a team of healthcare professionals as opposed to uh, one physician. So we are looking at modernizing and improving the healthcare system across the province, and many disciplines within our healthcare system need to be working to their full scope of practice. Uh, I'll get through a couple, and then I'll let you touch on whatever you'd like to have, Minister. The, back in March, I believe it was of this year, there was a subsidy program for those traveling for fertility services, IVF, but it had a maximum of three, three times going back to the well for $5,000, and for some, that just won't get the job done. We have the professionals and the training here amongst the doctors who work in fertility, but no clinic for them to work in. Are we working towards establishing a clinic versus just travel subsidies? Well, again, you know, that is another complex issue. And, you know, I, I can speak from personal experience, um, you know, in, in terms of looking at fertility clinics across the country. Uh, it is the competency of those in the clinic and the numbers of clients and and. Uh, you know, the, the numbers of individuals that they would be able to service in the run of a year. Um, you know, clients uh, will look at where they have the best possible chance of success in dealing with a, a fertility clinic. So there's a number of things to balance, Patty, in uh, when looking at enhancing services. The answer, uh, long answer short, yes, we want to enhance services in this province. Um, in speaking with people with lived experience, um, uh, people who've looked at fertility clinics and, and want the best chance of success, uh, it's more than just uh, enhancing services here. It's, it's about providing the opportunity to get the best service that they can get. Is there an issue you wanted to broach before we run out of time? Um, there's a couple of other issues. Uh, one is, believe it or not, uh, we have, within our own province, there's been some restriction in terms of the free flow of 
physicians, for example, we've spoken to uh, a number of physicians over the last couple of weeks who, you know, were looking to vacation in, in another area of the province, uh, but are required to fill out paperwork and provide uh, documentation to move from one area of the province to the other. So I know that that is, uh, uh, you know, part of the the policies of health care, our, our uh, uh, health authorities uh, to some degree, different health authorities operate uh, somewhat differently. But we did provide, and for physicians, this message is more for physicians really uh, that may be looking at providing locum service or on vacation in an area, filling in a couple of shifts. In order to facilitate the, the transfer of physicians between regional health authorities and allowing them to uh, provide coverage in areas where it's hard to resource, we have sent a, a memo to our regional health authorities encouraging them to work with uh, medical services divisions to allow one health authority to share information with another health authority with the consent of the physician as opposed to putting that burden on the physician and making the physician uh, do hours of paperwork to, you know, work in Eastern Health, for example, we'll use Bonavista as an example. If, if they're coming from Lab Grenfell in order to work in Bonavista, they would have to provide uh, paperwork and documentation and sure. the time themselves to do that. So it's the free flow of physicians within the province as well. So, And free flow, I mean, supposing you're from Sarnia, that's one where national accreditation, national standards, people who are doctors are willing to come here on locum but won't anymore because of the time, the effort, the paperwork, the cost. There's something badly wrong with that, and I know that's not necessarily a provincial matter as much as it is for the federal minister. I also want to talk about uh, training for newcomers to Canada who are healthcare professionals streamlined, like people point to Ukrainian doctors. Maybe next week we can schedule more time because there's no end of the questions that we have for you regarding the healthcare system. No, absolutely, and, and I'd look forward to that conversation as well. We've done a, a great deal of work in terms of the Ukrainian newcomers, for example. So, I mean, that can be a segment onto itself. Let's talk again next week. I appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Tom Osborne. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back. Let's go to line two. Dave, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi, Dave. Uh, Patty, uh, I have uh, spent about three or four months, pretty intense months of working with a lot of individuals, the provincial government, the ANC, uh, with the Ukrainians. Uh, I've spent a lot of time helping other volunteers, and I'd like to thank everybody for helping them. I got to tell you, there's a lot of inaccuracies. My mom would refuse to go to the hospital because everything is so bad, and, and we know we're all working on it. But I really got to tell the people of Newfoundland what is really happening out there. Um, we have doctors that were encouraged to come to Newfoundland and some of them uh, end up at the Holiday Inn and nothing happens. They're there for two or three weeks. No one contacts them. They're not really sure what happens. Now, there's a lot of things happening at, the sometime, at, at these things, you know. But generally speaking, they're here. So now it's the next plan. 
I had an opportunity of meeting a beautiful lady named the name Marina Sigorska, who is a uh, doctor from uh, Ukraine, family of eight, came here, didn't know what to do, didn't know where to go. Uh, sent a letter to the deputy mayor to, of uh, uh, St. John's and got a reply, and I thank Sheila for doing it. But I got to tell you, she's not frustrated. She's just wondering what is happening. Now, we've had a couple of meetings with the doctors. There is an individual named Maruf, um, I just can't pronounce his last name, who was a uh, kind of a, a spokesman for the group and was working on, be, uh, on behalf of that group with the government. Now, the government, in its infinite wisdom, uh, has hired him as an immigration officer with the provincial government, which is great, and he's doing great work with the doctors, but now we're in a bit of a conflict of interest. Now, I say this to Mr. Osborne because I've been, you know, messaging him back some back and forth, but Mr. Osborne does not think he's in a conflict of interest. I said he cannot represent the doctors and the government at the same time. The doctors know that they have to get the license. It's going to take to two to four years. Maybe all of them won't be doctors. Maybe they'll be physicians, physicians assistants, or they may be licensed practical nurses or whatever. But in the meantime, they're looking for daycare or some housing, or what do they do because they have to bring up their, uh, their knowledge of English and get a job and in the meantime support themselves. So we've been back and forth trying to figure out what we're supposed to do and everything else. Is there going to be any kind of a program for offset housing? Is there any going to be a, a program to help them with daycare? They come here, the government gives them $3,000 for six months and nothing else. Now, I know that they're going to be fed, and I know that they have a place to stay, but they also got to find an apartment. Everybody knows how hard it is to find an apartment here and support their families. So I, I just don't understand where we're going with this. Uh, the, Mr. Osborne has a really good um, uh, department in there of doctor recruitment, but we've asked, like, is there any kind of a pilot project? Is anything happening? Like, they just want to know what the timelines are. Is there anything coming together in the else like that? I, I don't know. And, I, like, I, I think you heard me say to the minister, I'd really like to know more about that, which is why we're going to schedule more time with him next week. And it's not just Ukrainian refugees. There's newcomers right across the country who experience the exact same thing. One thing, you know, to streamline licensing and accreditation and exams, that's all something we can do better on. The one variable that I think is going to be different for different individuals is the language barrier so I don't know if there's a, a hard set date upon arrival when you think you can't be practicing because that language barrier is real it's got to be I don't know if overcome is the right word but it's got to be attended to so I'm gonna you know I'm gonna spend some time with the minister next week talking about that and exactly that and maybe only that I mean, my conversation with Mr. Osborne said, look, can we get someone to, to figure out how to do this? Because the, the, they will leave. They, they will leave, just like the Bulgarians will leave, just like the Tamils have left, just like the other people have left. They will leave. Uh, they, they have better support mechanisms in Winnipeg and other parts of, the, uh, of Canada. But when I asked Mr. Osborne about this, he tells me that is not his department. It's the Department of Immigration. Well, boys, can we all get together and solve this problem? Can we all get together? Because I am telling you, our people are dying. 
Our people are in desperate shape. Our people are in real, real crisis here. So let's all get the kids to the table and get this done. And I really thank for everybody that's helping. And I thank you very much. And I thank you for your time. I appreciate yours, Dave. Thanks a lot. Take good bye. care. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. And this is a great story that we spoke to uh, off the top of the program this morning. A $65 million deal signed out at the Port of Agentia for a lay-down, a storage yard for windmill turbine parts. Joining us on line number four is the CEO of the Port of Agentia. That's Scott Penny. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Petty. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. Look, congratulations, number one. But one of the, I think, the... Best or coolest parts of this story is, you know, the double down on the oil and gas opportunities, and that's still not gone away, but there's new opportunities out there. So you and your leadership team identified the opportunity and the players working therein and made some cold calls like you're trying to sell cars or doodads. This is brilliant stuff. Talk us through the process. Absolutely. So I joined I joined the port here about 22 months ago and took over as CEO, and I was here for five days um, and got a call from one of my staff and said, uh, we've, got, we've been called to a meeting with Husky at the time and of course you know what that call was it was that we were shutting down a project so you can imagine (laughs) you can imagine the the ripple effect uh five days in so right from that day we said look there there's we've got to plan a route to get us out the other end this will end and we've got to be ready and, and ready to move into whatever comes after COVID. And so we, as you said, began to think outside the box, did a lot of reading. You know, we had lots of time to do a lot of reading at home, find areas where we could interject in some industry. And what we found was at the time, there was a major announcement by President Biden at the time. He wanted 30 gigawatts of offshore wind uh, by 2030, a very ambitious goal. And we started to read into what was required and, and some of the deficiencies in the U.S. with respect to the ability to meet that. And the one that glaringly was uh, ports and heavy laydown. And that's one of the things, if you watch any U.S. news network, a lot of the times that's what they'll talk about is the investment that the government's got to make to get some of their ports ready around the uh, eastern seaboard. But that all takes time, and it takes – it's just not an easy, easy process. So – we were able to, I guess, identify very clearly that, you know, hey, we've got what they need. And coincidentally, the Americans built it about 80 years ago. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's a beautiful uh, location, ice-free port. It was an old base. It has runways, 70 hectares of runways. And we very quickly put the pieces together and said, you know what, we've got a very compelling story here. And if we knock on doors, somebody's going to listen. And somebody's going to take advantage. And uh, we're going to find a partner. And that's how it happened. And uh, we did make cold calls. We reached out to multiple players. We reached out. And I'll say all the names because I'm not allowed to, to announce because of the NDA. But, you know, we spoke to companies like DeMay, Tideway, uh, Jan Anul, Van Ord, Boscalis. We talked to all of these companies. And uh, one stuck. We got one, and, and that's where we're to today. It, it's terrific. And, you know, we're talking about creation of 20 jobs, but there's room to grow here. The industry is going to grow. So you're talking about a U.S. market. We've got the deep sea port, ice-free. It's on the northeast coast of the yep. continent. Yep. There's an excellent opportunity there. Inside of this, I, of course, spend a lot of time reading between the lines. Right. Uh, 
does there present a domestic market and opportunity as well for said growth? Because we know there's a bunch of proposals, including in your port, right. for hydrogen projects out in Port of Port, and there's more coming. So what can you tell us about what you think are the domestic growth opportunities? Well, you know, for us here, I think there, there is absolutely. Now, where it goes here around for, for the province and for the country, um, you know, I think there is opportunity, no question, for domestic growth. I think, um, you know, it's a more, it's, you know, offshore is obviously more scalable, um, but it's more true. It's very, it's much more expensive and takes a heavy uh, capital investment. So, but I think that is, you know, we will get there uh, as a country and as a province for sure and as a continent. Um, from a from a spin-off and, you know, what's out there locally here that can help support this product, there will be, there's going to be significant demand on local industry to support and help us facilitate and execute on this co- contract, whether it be from road construction and upgrading and civ- heavy civil works, um, you know, transporting of the good, of the material. It's just, an, you know, touching up and repairs and security and, you know, it, the list goes on and on uh, of what is going to actually be a spin-off from this whole whole project and opportunity. So apparently it's the first what they call a monopile marshalling project in the North America period. Give us an idea of what kind of injection of capital is going to be required to create the storage in the laydown yard, what that might mean for in addition to 20 jobs in the beginning, because there's always a bit more work by the time it gets built than however many permanent operational jobs is another question, but how much money is being spent on exactly what? Well, you're going to see it, uh, you know, from the ports perspective, we're going to see somewhere in the range from 7 to $10 million. That's going to upgrade uh, our, our dock area in time for the first arrival in Q2 of 2023. Uh, we're going to see a significant upgrade in our route transit uh, our transit route, which we, is what we call it. So that is when the actual monopod is offloaded the vessel. It's going to roll out uh, on an SBMT, go on to our uh, roadway. So that's going to see a significant investment to allow us to move that heavy material, heavy equipment up to, to the runway. You're going to see our what we call our bowl area, which is directly across from our main port. That's going to be significantly reduced with tens of thousands of aggregate that is going to be removed for that. So there's going to be significant dollars invested. You're going to see, uh, you know, you're going to see heavy players, uh, international players like a company like uh, Mammut in town who are going to set up shop. And they're here now doing great work with the West White Rose project. And they're going to have a significant um, foothold here in Argentia, I believe, for many, many years to come. And so things like that, you know, just, and I'm just touching the surface on the economic spinoff because there will be jobs. There will be jobs for snow clearing. There's going to be jobs for for, you know, security, uh, handling. And I think what you're going to see, Patty, and when you talk about the opportunity that the Port of Argentia has in being a player in that uh, whole transition, you're going to see an opportunity for uh, the port to, to play a significant role in that, and you're going to see a lot of abilities for local skilled labor to begin a transfer of knowledge. And so what typically happens on these projects, you're going to see companies send in, uh, let's just use an example, a crew of 10 to build a widget. And the next time they build a widget, they're probably going to use eight, and two locals are going to be Im- embedded into that crew. And before you know it, there's 10 Newfoundlanders building it because the, the, the knowledge transfer is there. So this is what I talk about when I talk about opportunity. And, you know, this is Newfoundland's new energy sector. And it is quite significant. And uh, pardon the pun, the runways are our most significant diamond in the rough and our competitive advantage. And I say this all the time. You know, what we what this runway has done, it's given 
the, the province, the country, and the people of this region uh, the wrong way to really lead the transition to that green economy. I like worldwide. it. There's nothing quite like out of province or out of country money to be injected into our economy. It'd be great to have a local partner or a Canadian partner, but what's the significance in your mind to have an international partner? Well, you know, it, it, you know, if you think about it, you're, you can certainly walk around, and we've done. I've done a lot of traveling um, since since February, and uh, I can tell you, when you walk with these two major partners that we have, which unfortunately I can't disclose, but when you walk into a large international conference, trade trade show, um, I can tell you, you instantly get credibility. You you have a signed contract. You have something that a very large team has thought out the process and say it can work. And so when you have that in hand, it's a totally different conversation, feel, vibe that you get at these shows because you are the real deal. And uh, they're outselling now. Like they and you know we're just sitting back and, and not sitting back. And, and but they are pushing. They need more and more of these projects. The U.S. government needs more and more of these projects in execution. And the fact that we can marshal these through our yard and, and load load them in and, and out load them during the construction season, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And these projects, um, the spin-off is tremendous. Uh, they grow arms and legs. I don't think there's any secret to that. They they go over budget, and that's not that it's a good thing. But you know things don't always line up as you plan, and you've got to have mitigation factors in place. And we do we do do that, and that's that's what's so exciting about here for sure. These are all new parts, are they, Scott? They are all new parts. So, okay, uh, but they are they're the actual base. The actual base, right? The monopile that the the cylinder that the turbine is attached to. Exactly. And okay. just to give you some idea, they're they're over 110 meters long, so a couple of hockey rinks in lengthwise, uh, and you know around 2,500 to 3,000 tons each. So quite a significant load. And so as you can imagine, places along that on our eastern seaboard that can take that, there's not there's none. And so. Uh, it, it is truly, truly phenomenal uh, opportunity for, for the entire province. Well, congratulations. Thanks for making time for us this morning, Scott. No, thanks for the interest, Patty. Really appreciate it. Take good care. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Scott Penny, he's the CEO of the Port of Argentia. That's a pretty big deal, and it's just in its infancy. Room to grow. Love it. Final break of the morning. Uh, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, line number two, Corona Brophy, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Thanks so much for taking my call today. Happy to do um, it. Before we do whatever you want to talk about, congratulations on your first solo record. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. It's, it's been going very well, actually. Great. I'm, re- I'm really uh, proud of it and delighted, and the sales are going really well. So if anybody wants to pick up a copy, they're at Fred's or O'Brien's or Crafted Treasures. So, But I'm calling about our gig tomorrow night now, the Celtic Fiddlers. So we're into our 29th year, and... Uh, We've been fairly busy this summer. We uh, started out in in June in Marystown. Uh, we had a great show there and then um, went to Hearts Content at the uh, Performing Arts Center there in July and uh, the rooms. Uh, we've had lots of conferences and uh, we did the George Street Kitchen Party on Saturday, July the 30th. And then the Dildo Brewery this past Saturday, which was a ball. We had a great time there, lots of people coming and going. And we also played at the Lions Manor. It was the first time the seniors had had a, a show in two years. And uh, they were so thrilled to have us come in because they haven't seen anybody. And those people, as you know, our seniors are the ones that gave us the music. 
So we, we wanted to give back. And we do this every tour we do, whether it's in Ireland or New York or wherever we go. And uh, so that was a delight. And then Sunday night we played for the Irish Newfoundland Connection show with the Sarah, the Sea and Placentia. And that was a, a wonderful t- night as well with all Irish groups there. It was uh, fantastic. So tomorrow night we're at the Elk Club. And um, this is part of our Come Home 22 tour. It starts at 8 o'clock and our tickets are $20 each. Um, and as you know, the Elks Club is trying to get back on its feet with entertainers. So, And it's in the middle of the city. So if you're in walking distance or, you know, bring a family or if you've got any uh, visitors here from the island, around the island or outside, come on down for a, a night of uh, fun and entertainment. Oh, it sounds fun. Look, I mean, for anyone who's ever seen a Celtic Fiddler's performance, it is exactly that, a lot of fun. Yes, yeah, we, we really enjoy it. And we got lots of vocals. It's not just fiddle music. Oh, no, uh, yeah, of course. A lot of singing and, uh, you know, carrying on jokes and parodies and stuff like that. So, you know, and a lot of people say, I've never heard you. Well, this is the time to come now because we have nine musicians and uh, lot, lots of uh, talent, I've got to say. Corona, you mentioned to go to New York and Ireland and what have you. So I think a lot of people would be surprised that you have toured as, extensive, as extensively as you have. Yes. And, and I, uh, I, I personally plan all the tours and the, the buses and the hotels and everything. It's, it's a lot of time and, and effort, but I love it. And uh, like we've done six tours of Ireland. Uh, we were invited to New York uh, by the Canadian Consulate and the Canadian Associ- Association of New Yorkers for their Canada Day show there back in 2016. Uh, and it was, it was a wonderful time. We did a screech in there for uh, for anybody who wanted to become a, an honorary Newfoundlander. Um, and I do all the planning for the tours around the province. But this year we decided just to do the Avalon because of the price of gas and, and accommodations and things like that. So uh, it worked out really well, and we so we could come and go, and you know, like last week we stayed at our cabin, for example, on our en route to Placentia. That was a, a great time too. But yeah. Before we run out of time, give the folks the details one more time of the upcoming gig. Okay, it's at the Elks Club on Carpation Road. You can get tickets at Eventbrite uh, or at the door tomorrow with lots of room there. Uh, come bring some friends. Uh, there's a bar there. Um, you know the normal set up. <laughs> And it starts at 8 o'clock. So, uh, yeah, come on down, and we'd love to see, uh, uh, you know, new faces or any of the old faces, too. It'd be, be a great time. Have a great Thanks time. So much, Have a great time, Corona. Okay, my darling. Take care. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. Corona Brophy, one of the founders and artistic director of the Celtic Fiddlers. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.